Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Al Letson Reveals. I'm Al Letson. So this podcast special gives me a chance to dive in deep with people you've been hearing about. Folks who are provocative and even controversial, like today's guest, who talked to us from a studio on Columbia's campus in New York. Walking through the Columbia University, you're taking your life in your hands if you're made. Part campaign manager, part conservative provocateur, he credits himself with turning Donald Trump into president of the United States. Today's guest is no other than Roger Stone. You have had a busy, busy couple years, huh? Yeah, well, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. (laughs) Well, you're being talked about a lot. I'm out there. He's the first to admit it's not always good things that people have to say. His reputation for playing dirty goes back to the 70s, working on the Nixon campaign. Stone's been involved in major Republican presidential campaigns since Nixon. Much of his career was recently documented in the Netflix film Get Me Roger Stone. I started our chat asking him what he thought about the movie. I thought it was pretty down the middle. You know, it was neither a love letter nor a hit piece. I think it was a pretty accurate reflection of my involvement in the political zeitgeist um, and how the themes that elected Richard Nixon in 1968, elected Ronald Reagan in 1980, elected Donald Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. When I uh, watch the movie and I hear you talk about politics, it sounds to me like you're talking about sports, like it's a, a competition or a boxing match. Well, politics is a contact sport uh, in America. And those people who say, oh, we should stick to the issues, try putting out a white paper on economic development and see much, how much coverage you get. The answer would be none. No one cares. People like the conflict. They like a fight. Americans love a fight. So you didn't start the dirty tricks. You just continued the legacy of it. Oh, well, I just took them into the Internet age, I guess. No, politics has always uh, been rough and tumble. You know, uh, dirty tricks are in the eyes of the beholder. One man's dirty trickster is another man's freedom fighter. You have an office that's filled with Nixon memorabilia. You have a huge tattoo of Nixon on your back. You use Nixon's signature, two hands up. Clearly, he's a really big influence on your life. Yeah, he is. um, I think now with the benefit of retrospection, he's one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. Whose retrospection, though? For most Americans... Nixon is is a villain. He's the only president forced to resign from office. I mean, most people would run from that association. 
Yeah, he also reached the strategic arms limitations with the Soviets, opened the door to China, ended the war in Vietnam uh, before the Pentagon wanted to. So all the great things that you talk about with Nixon, um, what about the dirty tricks that ended up getting him pushed out of office? Without any question, Nixon's men made a, 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 a stupid decision to break into the Watergate. So I guess what I would say is, in retrospect, it's my belief that Nixon was uh, was taken down by the deep state. We've now learned that two of the Watergate burglars were still on the CIA payroll and reporting to their case officers. Nixon's real sin, he was a peacemaker. I want to I want to switch gears a little bit about Nixon and more get to more your personal relationship with him. Who was Richard Nixon away from the presidency? Who was he as a man? Well, the the whole point of the tattoo on my back uh, is not actually a political statement, at least not ideologically. It, what it is for me is a daily reminder that in life, when things don't go your way, when you're defeated, when you come up short, when you focus everything on something and you and you lose, when you're dejected and disappointed and maybe even depressed about your failure, well, that's the time to get up off the mat and get back in the game. Nixon's story is a story of personal resilience and discipline. There was another campaign strategy that Nixon used called the Southern Strategy, which used race as a wedge issue on matters such as segregation and busing to appeal to white Southerners. In 2005, Ken Melman, uh, head of the RNC, apologized for it. First of all, I reject your analysis of Nixon's campaign strategy in 1968. Historians look back at what happened during the Nixon campaign, and they tagged it as the Southern Strategy. It's not me saying it. Historians are, by and large, liberals, and that is a biased view. But in 2005, Ken Melman, who was the head of the RNC, apologized for it, specifically for Nixon's Southern strategy. Mr. Melman speaks only for himself. I think at that time he was speaking for the RNC. Well, that, that may be. Maybe there's some calculation there. I don't think when it comes to civil rights, Richard Nixon has anything to apologize for. But in the 2016 election... Trump, and by virtue you, seemed to use the same strategy, but you expanded it to include Muslims, Latinos, immigrants. Is that a dirty trick? To say that we should freeze immigration from certain countries until we have a better way of vetting and reviewing those who apply to come to this country, that's not bigoted or racist. That's common sense. Sealing our borders permanently from immigrants from those countries, that would be bigoted, but that's not what the president has proposed. But that's it. In, in the tweets that the president has put out, they have been clearly saying that it is a ban, that he is looking to stop people from coming from those countries, that he doesn't want refugees coming in. It very clearly says that it's not what you're saying it is right now. He wants to keep those people out. Yeah, I, I don't uh, I just don't agree with that, uh, that with that interpretation. It's not my interpretation. It's specifically what Trump is tweeting. Would you let 200,000 immigrants from Syria in without knowing who each one of them are? Disproportionately young men, by the way. Is there some possibility that some of them could be criminals or terrorists? Is that possible? 
I think it's likely, actually. I think that it's a possibility that if you get any group of people together, there are going to be people in that group that are have bad intentions. Absolutely. Earlier today, I did an interview with a counterterrorism uh, expert who said the number one terrorist in America are white men who are that's going nonsense. Out. Sorry, that's nonsense. Look, this is really, really simple. We have seen a pattern of illegals killing people in this country. Now, some will people say, well, in 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 sanctuary series, we've those- seen a pattern of everyday Americans killing people. I'm saying in any population, you are going to have bad actors. No ifs, ands or buts about it. If one illegal immigrant kills one American citizen, then the system has failed. If one white supremacist kills... There are no white supremacists, my friend. This is a tiny This is a tiny microcosm of the United States. The Ku Klux Klan today is funded by the federal government. Those are hold, all hold on, informants. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's rewind a little bit. Let's rewind. Let's both of us take a deep breath because I want to have a conversation, not an argument with you. I can't let you just say things that aren't true. So go ahead. You just said that there are no white supremacists. There are virtually none. The whole notion is that there's some giant constituency of white supremacists in the country is a joke. I have interviewed white supremacists, and I can tell you that they are there. There are white supremacist organizations. You can go online. Most of them funded by the federal government. If you went to a Klan meeting today, most of the people there are government informants. This is a tiny group of freaks. This is a tiny group of misfits. Right here, we're going to disagree about whether there are white supremacists in this country. We can disagree about that. I think that What I don't understand is you said most of the white supremacists that you see at a Ku Klux Klan rally are working for the government. Explain that to me. Yes. The government continues to pay people as informants. And this has kind of propped up that movement. I'm not going to say there are no white supremacists. That would be ridiculous. But you did say that. There are virtually. Okay, let me correct myself. There are virtually none. Sorry. Are you going to tell me that more people were killed in this country by white supremacists than illegal uh, immigrants? Are you going to claim that? Because that's false. That's just not true. That's just not true. I would say you can look at the history of this country and you can trace how white supremacists have terrorized People who are different in this country, minorities, have terrorized black people, have terrorized Latinos, have terrorized indigenous people in this country. It is a part of our history, and we can't deny that. Maybe in the 1890s, I really think you're seeing a tremendous um, uh, uh, a problem that doesn't really exist on a wholesale basis. Uh, I denounce white—first of all, I denounce white supremacists. I have nothing in common with them. Uh, but I, uh, I have spoken all over the country, and I've been to many, many— many conservative meetings. I've never seen the people you're talking about. I think they are a tiny minority. I am an African-American man who grew up in the South, and I can tell you that I have seen white supremacists. I can tell you that there is a large contingency of, of them in the South. I can tell you that they may not wear sheets. They may not burn crosses on your lawns, but they are there. And I can tell you, as a, as a white man who lives in Harlem, I am threatened all the time. All the time on the streets. So let's not pretend that that problem doesn't exist. This is a minority in both extremes. Race in America is a complicated issue. Yes. It's a very complicated issue. And I live my life in one lens and you live it in another and we see the world differently. But let let, let me ask you this. I went and looked at your Twitter feed and I saw some of the tweets that you have put out there. And some of those tweets could be categorized as racist. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, you say you have nothing in common with white supremacists, but yet you tweeted Roland Martin saying, who is this stupid Negro Roland Martin, uh, buffoon or token yeah, I, buffoon? I, that, I, 
actually, I've actually apologized for that particular tweet. But just to point this out, there's a lot of them, though. I there's was, a lot. Of I was them. marching with Reverend Sharpton against New York State's racist drug laws, the so-called Rockefeller drug laws, 15 years ago. So, uh, and I have, and I have supported every gay marriage initiative in the state of Florida where I'm a resident. So don't call me a racist or a bigot because I am neither based on one tweet that was probably intemperate. I am not calling you a racist. I'm merely asking for you to explain these statements to me because these statements sound like Racism. I say. As, have you ever said anything you regretted in your long career or in your short, shorter career than mine? Oh my goodness! I, I can. I, I yes. I, I have absolutely said plenty of things that I've regretted, and and I've apologized for it. And I have apologized for that. It was intemperate, uh, and it was uh, it was an error. So let, let's 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 move on to the news of the day. When did you first meet Mr. Trump? I met him in 1979 when I was sent to New York to organize Governor Reagan's campaign for president. What made you think he could be a politician? He has a a certain charisma, a certain magnetism, although it's greater than that. It's a, I don't know, it's a command presence, if you will. Um, He's, he's obviously, he's tall. He is, um, he is, he is magnetic. Uh, It's really hard to put your finger on. I wanted him to run in 1988. I wanted him to run in 2000. I wanted him to run in 2012. In retrospect, I would have to admit that the time would not have been right for the Trump style. Uh, and in all of those years, there was a better chance that a, that a career politician of either party would win the presidency. What makes the time right now? I've never seen in any of the polling I have looked for a greater disgust and distrust and anger with both parties and with all political institutions by the voters. They've had it. They're fed up. They're tired of being lied to. They blame both parties, as they should. They distrust the media for the first time. So I think the time was right for an outsider, uh, and Trump entered the race with one giant advantage, universal name ID. Fifteen seasons of The Apprentice, there was not a person in the United States who didn't know who Donald Trump was. That's an extraordinary advantage. The 2016 campaign, it was brutal. I mean, you described it in the documentary as the era of stone. And you ushered in some pretty brutal attacks, Hillary Clinton, with the lock her up chants that you heard all over the country. Yes. You said that Hillary hires private detectives to break into women's homes, kill their children, and kill their pets. I didn't say um, kill their children. I think I said threaten their children. Let me ask you this. Why should we believe you? One of Stone's rules is deny, deny, deny. So if that's one of your rules... Unless you have some evidence to the contrary, you don't have to believe me. You don't even have to have me on your radio program. Uh, you know, uh, it, I put it out there. If, if you have some proof, I'd like to see it. You said you'd like to testify to the House or Senate Intelligence Committee regarding Russia. What is it that you'd say to them? Well, for example, Stone knew in advance of Podesta's uh, email being hacked. No, I didn't. And he has no evidence to the contrary. That needs to be publicly corrected. Others say Stone was in direct contact with Assange. Assange, by the way, in my view, is a journalist. And the idea that the Trump administration would prosecute a journalist for publishing information that they obtain 
I find that deeply troubling. I, I, I think that if you arrest Julian Assange for publishing information that he's given by a source, who's next? The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun? It's a slippery slope. What about journalists who disagree with Trump? I'm opposed to censorship. I'm opposed to censorship of any kind. I don't think you should be censored on Facebook or Twitter or whether you want to publish an article that I disagree with. I'm opposed to censorship. So what's your take on on fake news then? Yeah, like CNN, for example. I think a lot of of what they produce is fake news. Fake news, again, in the eye of the beholder. The eye of the beholder, though, is a little bit of a cop-out when there is truth. There is... X happened or Y happened. There's truth. I, I I think we just went round and round and pointed out that we can't agree on what the truth is on certain issues. And therefore, everyone should be able to express their point of view. How do you think disinformation has informed the society we live in today? Well, let's see. Where should we start? President Obama not being an American citizen. That was false. Yes, it was. I believe it was. And that was the first uh, major political act by Donald Trump. By the time he was campaigning, he had created a platform based on that misinformation. Many, many people believed it. And until the president released a birth certificate, it was, at least for many Americans, an open question why he didn't release that document far earlier than he did and put this whole thing to rest. I really don't know. I believe in the intelligence of the American people. Let each person decide what they choose to believe, what they choose to value, and what they don't. Here's a real consequence of that. Pizzagate. A guy goes to this pizza... uh, Right, who's now disappeared, by the way, and who may have been a paid provocateur. I feel like any question that I give you that points uh, towards disinformation... Um, you're going to throw back at me like, who is this guy? Where'd he go? And he's not associated and I, and with us. And I feel, and I feel about, like, like your questions are, are loaded to make me take responsibility for Pizzagate, something I've never written about or talked about and have very little knowledge about. What I'm asking you, no, we're, ta- we're talking about fake news, and all I'm trying to do is give you an example of how fake news can become a problem. And so that's where I think that we have to look at what fake news is doing to us as or, a society. And we, and we have to acknowledge that sometimes fake news is created for purposes of disinformation. I know nothing whatsoever about Pizzagate. Okay, let's let's talk about Trump and the FBI. Did you recommend that he fire Director James Comey? Um, I, I am not going to characterize any conversations that I have had with the president that would be private. Did you think that Comey should be fired? Uh, I did. I had I'd certainly written it. Um, I talked about it in my syndicated radio show. I talked about it on my weekly television Why? show. Um, for a number of reasons. First of all, I think that he had become a power unto himself, deciding what crimes to investigate and what crimes not to, on the basis of the New York Times story that— Is, isn't that his job, No, though? no, it's not. No, it's not his job. He politicized the FBI. He furthered the obstruction. He actually facilitated it. On, on, on the flip side, it looks like President Trump tried to impede an active investigation by asking Comey to stay away from Russia. Not, not, what, he said, not what he said at all. Well, no, he asked for Comey's loyalty. He asked for Comey's loyalty when the FBI is supposed to be an independent organization that goes out and investigates. The, the FBI director serves at the pleasure of the president of the United States. But the FBI has to have the freedom to be able to investigate the current administration as well. Mr. Comey did not say that, uh, that the president told him to fix no, the investigation no, no, no. into he, Flynn. He asked him to go easy on Flynn. 
He asked him to go easy on uh, Flynn. There is still, to this day, no evidence whatsoever that Flynn has broken the law. There are, there's evidence that Flynn did some stupid things. I don't think I would have taken a gratuity from Russian TV. By the way, I've appeared on RT. I won't take any money from them. And before each appearance, I make it clear that I could say something critical of the Russian state of Vladimir Putin. I, I am not going to be censored there any more than any place else. And they've never had a problem with that. Do you feel like this is a presidency in crisis? Because, you know, he uh, hasn't been able to to move any major legislation. Just a tiny percent of Americans want his health care plan passed. Most Americans oppose pulling out of the Paris Accords. How do you think the presidency is doing right now? If it's a presidency in crisis, it's because those who last who lost the last election now seek to do what they couldn't do at the ballot box to undermine the president, to um, to destabilize his presence. When I look at the way you think of politics and how rough and tumble it is and how, um, you know, everybody's got to pull their knives out. I'm wondering, what does your vision of America look like? The policies that we have been pursuing for the last 30 years are not working. There are too many people in poverty. There are too many people getting poor education. There are too many children graduating from college and having to move back in with their parents. The answer to all of our uh, to our policy questions, the problem to a better America, is economic prosperity. And you think that the, the economic moves and the moves that the, the administration are doing right now are going to do that? I think the moves of the last two administrations have failed to do it, so why wouldn't we go in the opposite direction? Yes, I think cutting taxes and cutting regulation and moving obstacles to job creation would create a stronger economy. Yes, if you cut the corporate tax rate below that of China or Mexico or Japan, you will force a number of countries to co- companies to come back in this country to expand here, to hire here. Uh, and I think that would that would create an economic boom. So I think more pro-growth oriented policies, the kind of economic plan that the president put forward during the campaign would uh, ignite an economic boom, which would both give us more revenue to deal with our many social problems and more time. Mr. Stone, thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate your time, and I hope we can talk again. Happy to be here. Many thanks. Roger Stone was a campaign advisor to Donald Trump. By the way, after this interview was recorded, the Pizzagate shooter, Edgar Madison Welch, the guy who Roger Stone said disappeared, was sentenced to four years in prison. So we actually do know where he is. You're listening to Al Let's and Reveals. Now, if you like this interview and you want to hear more of me going one-on-one with someone, send me your suggestions on Twitter. I'm at Al underscore Letson. That's at Al underscore Letson. This interview was produced by Amy Walters and edited by Kevin Sullivan. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen, with help from Catherine Raimondo. Special thanks to Reveal editor Andy Donahue. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>